I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the Asia Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. From October 16th to 22nd, the Chinese Communist Party held its 20th Party Congress. The Party Congress is held every five years to reshuffle the party's top leadership, including the Politburo and its standing committee, as well as the Central Committee. The Party General Secretary delivers a political report which reviews the achievements of the past five years and sets priorities for the next five years. The 20th Party Congress was especially significant because Xi Jinping secured a third term as General Secretary of the Party and Chairman of the Central Military Commission, breaking previous norms. China watchers around the world have been closely tracking the personnel changes and analyzing the Party Congress political report. To talk about some of the crucial elements of that report and discuss the impact of the Party Congress on China's foreign policy going forward, we're delighted to have with us Dr. Bates Gill. Bates has recently been named the executive director of the newly established Center for China Analysis at the Asia Society Policy Institute. He has authored or edited nine books on China and Asia. And his most recent book, which I recommend highly to all of our listeners, is titled Daring to Struggle, China's Global Ambitions Under Xi Jinping. Welcome to the China Global Podcast, Bates. Thank you very much, Bonnie. Good to be here. So let's dig into Xi Jinping's political report. What do you see as the main themes and the main messages that Xi Jinping was delivering in this very long political report? I should note that when he delivered it, it was only about two hours long. And then when I woke up the next morning, I learned that the written version is about one third longer, uh, about the same length as previous years. Uh, But he did not deliver the entire report orally. And the report as written Uh, contains many nuggets that had not been included when Xi Jinping gave it orally. Right. Well, maybe two big takeaways. First, I was really struck with the degree to which ideology was such a central theme throughout. I suppose it is a party congress. And so, of course, there's going to be a degree of Marxist-Leninist ideology as part of the function. He is speaking to his fellow party members. But to a degree, I think you'd have to go back maybe even to Mao Zedong's time, the degree to which ideology infused his comments and how much emphasis he placed upon the tides of history and the dialectic and how he, in his leadership, was leading the party along these waves of history was quite striking. But maybe more importantly, just secondly, the degree to which he spoke to the challenges and the problems and the stormy seas, as he put it. I did a quick count, sort of a word count, and you know, the two terms that you can translate as struggle, fundo, and dojang, he used those terms something like 55 or 60 times in this speech, and he, he has continued to do so subsequent to that speech. So I was really struck with this whole shift in thinking away from the period of strategic opportunity to one that he says is going to be far, far more challenging, difficult, stormy, and full of struggle going forward. Let's talk a little bit about the description of the international environment in the political report, which I found quite dark. We know that there have been references to peace and development being the main theme of the times going back to the 13th Party Congress. But the language that was used this time was different. There is a reference to peace and development, but the phrase peace and development is the main theme of the times is missing. 
And there was mention of strategic opportunities for China in this current international environment, but again, not in the same way that there has been in the past. Jiang Zemin had put this idea forward early in the century, and he had said China faces a 20-year period of strategic opportunity that was later extended by Xi Jinping. But in this political report, opportunities is combined with risks. And then there's the reference that you just made to the stormy seas. And that whole sentence, just to let our listeners hear it, was, we should get our house in good repair before the rain comes and prepare to undergo the major tests of high winds and waves and even perilous stormy seas. So that all really struck me. What do you see as the implications this will have for Chinese foreign policy going forward? Well, obviously, uh, the calculation has been made that the headwinds that they've encountered, not just from the United States, but from many of China's closer neighbors and around the world, are likely to continue to get worse. And I think this is a calculation that has probably been made well prior to this party Congress. And we've seen elements, I think, of this growing anxiety or concern about the international situation. And no doubt, the events that have unfolded in 2022 in relation to Ukraine have only, I think, further reinforced this worrisome strategic outlook. What it's going to mean for China's foreign policy, it, you know, I talk about it a little bit in the book, I think it's going to mean a far more contested relationship with China, because rather than looking at these challenges and then trying to figure out ways to accommodate them or to find common ground with, with others to try and jointly deal with them, my sense is that Xi Jinping's solution is to double down and be more forceful to be even more assertive, to utilize the instruments at their disposal, economic, military, diplomatic, and otherwise to further reinforce China's interests in ways that I think are only going to lead to greater contestation. There have been some observers who think that China has made mistakes in its foreign policy in recent years. Ukraine uh, perhaps could be one example, siding with Russia and Putin when they met at the Olympics and signed an extensive joint statement is certainly mentioned by some people as a mistake. Also, the sanctions that were imposed on some EU parliamentarians, institutes, and experts are viewed by many uh, as overreach. But not surprisingly, there's no admission in this political report that China has made mistakes in its foreign policy. Do you think that Xi Jinping and other top officials believe that any errors have been made? And if you think this is the case, do you think they might have any adjustment uh, in mind in their approaches, uh, whether it be perhaps less use of economic coercion, which has not worked against either Australia or Lithuania, or maybe tamping down wolf warrior diplomacy? Well, we have to assume that they understand that, and they do acknowledge that the uh, international scene is getting more treacherous. So I think they have to attribute that in at least in part, you know, to the knowledge that they have made maybe some missteps. So I think there's probably some small acknowledgement of that, but we shouldn't expect them to be public about it. So rather, I think the calculation has been that while, yes, there are risks involved and even downturns in their relationships with key partners as a result of their more assertive pursuit of their key interests, those risks are acceptable, apparently, because in their view, the risks of not doing so of not pursuing their interests more forcefully and assertively are even higher. Um, the risks of not doing so are even greater. If they don't pursue these interests more forcefully, then I believe they've calculated 
then you know the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation and and all the major core national interests that that they've stated won't be achieved. So yes, it's a risk. They may know that it's going to entail headwinds and trouble with their major partners, but it apparently is deemed worth it. The Taiwan section of the political report didn't strike me as containing anything fundamentally new. Rather, it seemed to be a reiteration of things that were contained in the white paper on Taiwan that was released this past August. I didn't see any signs of new urgency to achieve reunification. But I'm very curious whether you agree and and whether you think reunification is a legacy issue for Xi Jinping. We know at this point he hasn't named a successor. He'll be in office at least 10 years, potentially longer, even for life. But we don't know that for sure. So is reunification with Taiwan one of his highest priorities during his time as head of the party? The successful full assertion of Chinese sovereignty over the island of Taiwan uh, is obviously the goal of numerous Chinese leaders in the past, and it would set Xi Jinping apart as, you know, go down in history, etc., at least from mainland Chinese point of view, as one of the greatest leaders uh, ever. So, you know, I I would think that it's something he would surely wish to achieve, but, uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of challenges ahead of that. And I think the language he used in his political report was perhaps reflective of a somewhat more moderate tone. I mean, I, if there was any sort of good news uh, to come out of that political report as far as China's foreign policy is concerned, I agree with you that the somewhat more moderate tone on Taiwan is is a piece of that. Um, so, you know, I suspect that over the next five or 10 years, I don't agree with the assessment that we've seen coming from many quarters, you know, that there's going to be a forceful assertion of Chinese sovereignty against Taiwan in the next you know, five years or so. If it does come, it, it's not likely to come in that period in the form of a sort of, you know, traditional D-Day style invasion type effort. But rather, you know, I think they're going to continue to hone the range of other tools short of military force to try and continue to narrow the options uh, for Taiwan and to continue to try and shape Taiwan's long-term trajectory towards China. And there's lots of things they can do, you know, through economic means, the continued use of military threats and coercion, you know, continuing to work very, very hard on the diplomatic front to narrow Taiwan's options. And there's a lot more that they probably can do. And I think they still feel confident that those tools can work. I agree with that. I think that China hasn't completely given up on achieving unification without resorting to the use of kinetic force. But of course, although Xi Jinping said that China will do its utmost to rely on peaceful means to achieve reunification, in China's view, that encompasses coercive means as well. There's a question about whether Xi Jinping and others in China are actually losing hope that they can ever achieve reunification without using force. They undoubtedly read the public opinion polls as we do. The percentage of people in Taiwan who support reunification now or at any point in the future is about 6%. That's an all-time low. And the vast majority of the people in Taiwan now identify as Taiwanese versus either exclusively Chinese or a combination of both Chinese and Taiwanese. So my question is, what might be the signs or the indicators that China has abandoned peaceful unification? What would that look like? Well, I suppose we'd surely see uh, some sort of uptick in the uh, 
you know, military side, uh, I think there would be an effort to try and push a lot harder on that coercive element. Uh, I suppose there might be punitive measures meted out against Taiwan economic interests inside China and even, you know, externally. So, again, I think it would be a slow ratcheting up of pressure rather than a sort of overnight lowering of the boom. Uh, So I think we'd we'd see it. We'd see a lot uh, of change and in the tone, I suppose, of how China expressed their concern, you know, rhetorically in terms of their diplomatic and other propaganda. So I don't think it would be a a flip of a switch overnight. I think we'd see a steady ratcheting up, a sort of incremental building up of pressure. And you're right. I mean, I think the situation across the Taiwan Strait is probably about, from China's perspective, it it must be seen as about as bad as it's been. And the longer-term prospects of unification must seem to be growing more distant. So one interesting thing I, I would hope for, and maybe that more moderate tone we think we heard, may signal some rethinking about, you know, the formula by which unification might take place. Because obviously the 92 consensus and, and one country, two systems, I think those are pretty much dead in the water and non-starters these days with Taiwan. So obviously, you know, on the other side of the coin, it, we might see some effort uh, at more moderation on China's part, but we'll just have to wait and see. Xi Jinping noted in his speech that China is playing an active role in the reform and development of the global governance system. And I believe it goes back to June 2018 when Xi Jinping said that China should lead reform of the global governance system. Could you talk about what you think China's goals are in this regard? What kind of global governance system do the Chinese envision? What's the view of multilateralism now? Does China still support that? And how does the Global Security Initiative fit in all of this? In the book, I talk a fair bit about it. I devote a whole chapter to um, the issue of you know, China's objective of leadership, as I put it, uh, within the international system. And I think this very much gets to the points that you're raising. A part of that effort is to reform or change the way the world works in some respects. I think the key element of these efforts, I find, is to present an alternative uh, framework, a, a way of thinking about global governance issues in ways which favor China's form of governance and which favor Chinese interests within the international system. So let's just take the Global Security Initiative as one example. Well, that still is yet to be fully formed, I think, and explained, but I think that's coming. That's coming. I mean, we saw, for example, the uh, establishment in the United Nation of a Friends of the Global Development Initiative I think we're likely to see down the track that there will be a similar sort of friends organization organized within the United Nations in support of the Global Security Initiative. But what's what's most important, I think, about this initiative is it's an attempt to differentiate China's approach from what it characterizes as the Western or uh, approach. And how would that be differentiated? Well, a part of the rhetoric, you know, makes the point that China is not a colonial power or a former colonial power. China does not impose force on states in the international system. China is a developing country and so understands the needs and desires of the developing world, unlike advanced economic countries like the United States. So it's an effort, I think, to, on the one hand, differentiate China from the West, but secondly, to reinforce China's sort of legitimacy and especially reinforce its form of governance as being legitimate. 
and to say, basically, our approach to security is that we're going to let countries develop the way they want to. Uh, we're not going to impose any particular political uh, system on others. And it's going to include, I think, a um, less attention to things like human rights and the like, or democracy, which is a major element, I think, of how Western countries approach the issue of developing security in the developing world. The political report also has a new lengthy section on the People's Liberation Army, which I think is being widely discussed among experts. What struck you as the most significant thing in that section? And what are the implications for China's military modernization going forward and and how it might use its military going forward? Well, I found it interesting that um, some of the appointments, relatedly, that Xi Jinping uh, has made uh, to the Central Military Commission um, not unlike uh, his building up of close, loyal supporters in the Politburo and in the uh, Politburo Standing Committee, he's made similar moves, it appears, to make sure that the top-ranked leadership of the PLA are going to be people he can fully trust and expect to do his bidding. I mean, I think from the political report and the emphasis that's been given to the PLA is it's clearly he sees going forward because of the stormy international situation. I think he wants to reinforce his support for the PLA. He wants to reinforce and assure the PLA's strict adherence to the party line uh, and loyalty to the party as the armed wing of the Chinese Communist Party. And it probably foresees his belief that the PLA is going to have to become more uh, active, you know, that that instrument of Chinese power is going to be more actively used in the coming five to 10 years. Again, this is a reflection of his overall view that China is going into a period of greater struggle in the international system, and uh, the, the PLA is going to be a big part of that. The word security, Antren, appears an unprecedented 91 times in the political report. Of course, in Chinese, security and safety are both the same word, so in the English text, you won't get exactly the same count as in the Chinese version. What's the significance of this growing emphasis on security, and particularly on national security? We've seen this domestically, of course, over the period of Xi's first two terms in office. I'm particularly interested in how you think it might be manifested in China's foreign policy. Well, I think what we're seeing here, and we've been talking about it you know, over the course of the podcast, is a real shift in the outlook or worldview as to what needs to be prioritized for China to achieve its you know, strategic goals, especially rejuvenation over the next 10, 20, 30 years. And one really important shift that's reflected in that use of security so often is, I would say, a diminution in the value or priority that would be placed on economic development as being sort of the core or fundamental, you know, the cornerstone uh, of China's achievements going forward. Uh, It's shifting uh, to a greater priority, it appears, on the establishment and assertion of security as the core element that China needs if it's going to be achieving the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. This is a huge change. It's true at home. I think that that's going to be a greater priority that as China's domestic development model flags, at least the one that has been so successful in the past is becoming less so, uh, is going to mean an uptick then in the need to assure security and stability and order at home. But we do see this being exported in some ways. Um, I'm doing some work right now on a project that tries to look at China's approach to global conflict 
prevention norms. And I think we see it reflected there, uh, that in their bilateral relationships and in some of their multilateral relationships within organizations like the Forum for China-Africa Cooperation, within the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, we see this emphasis increasing for those countries to achieve the goals that they are seeking. More security is going to have to be prioritized. We also see this sort of in the uptick in China's willingness to provide police training, counterterrorism training, funding of domestic police forces and armed forces in their bilateral relationships, especially in the developing world. All of this is increasing in a way to emphasize security. And we'll see more of it going forward under this global security initiative that Xi Jinping put forward earlier this year. Next, let's discuss U.S.-China relations. How do you think China is going to approach the United States and the U.S.-China bilateral relationship? I was really struck by the sentence in the political report that referred to external attempts to blackmail, contain, blockade, and exert maximum pressure on China. I believe this is the first time we have heard Xi Jinping in any speech use the term blackmail. And of course, this is referencing the United States. It seems to me we are in a very prolonged and intense competition. I don't see an interest on the Chinese side in trying to put in place what U.S. officials have referred to as guardrails or risk reduction measures. What do you think is going to be Xi Jinping's approach now that he's on the other side of this very important party congress? He's installed loyalists at the top level of the party leadership, and he now has the opportunity to set an agenda without concern about potential criticism or opposition. Is he going to try to stabilize the relationship with the United States, or should we expect to see a more confrontational approach? I suspect that they would prefer, uh, obviously, a more stable and predictable relationship with the United States. But the cost, the price that China would seek uh, from the United States to have that stability, I think, is simply too high and out of the question for the U.S. side. And I suspect that the Chinese side knows that fully well. Um, I think, too, they are probably looking with some concern at the U.S. political situation, questioning whether or not Joe Biden actually has the right stuff in his own political stability here in the United States to even think about a kind of grand bargain or really achieve some greater strategic stability in the relationship with China. So I suspect that they are going to wait. And we're not going to see, I don't think, any major breakthroughs with the presumed upcoming summit between Biden and Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the G20 and are instead going to be, I think, stealing themselves Uh, bracing themselves for what they know is going to be a much more contested and difficult relationship with the United States, surely under the Biden administration, and uh, surely if if, if we have a Republican-led or uh, a Republican majority in one or both of the houses of Congress, things are going to get worse, and they know that. And and surely it could get even worse uh, were, were there to be a Republican president in 2024. So I think Doubling down uh, is what they're going to end up doing uh, and being very, very cautious in agreeing to any type of stabilization measures, which I think they're going to suspect as being a plot. Finally, let me ask you a question about personnel arrangements. We won't know until the National People's Congress in the spring who will be the new foreign minister. Wang Yi, the current foreign minister, has been named a Politburo member, and that's probably an indication that he will take the position of Yang Jiechi as head of the Foreign Affairs Commission. 
Qin Gang, the current Chinese ambassador to the United States, was somewhat surprisingly named as a member of the Central Committee, and that has led many to expect that he will be the new foreign minister. Do you think these personnel arrangements mattered very much? What does this reshuffle mean for Chinese foreign policy and for the U.S.-China relationship? Well, I guess first and foremost, you know, these are two obviously trusted and very, very experienced hands. And I suppose that's an indication from Xi Jinping that, you know, he needs these experienced uh, individuals that he can count on because, as he's noted, China's entering into a much more complicated and contested future. What does it mean for U.S.-China relations? I guess on the positive side, uh, these are individuals who are well-known to American interlocutors. So it's not, you know, it's not going to be a a sort of question of trying to get to know somebody new or, you know, create new relationships. So I think that might be one positive. But, you know, Wang Yi and even uh, to a lesser degree, Qing Gang, you know, have shown uh, that they are going to be a part of this more assertive and contested relationship with the United States. I mean, these are not shrinking violets. And so I think uh, on the downside, if there's a downside, it is that uh, it's going to be more of the same. And I I don't see them wavering an iota uh, away from what I take to be this uh, overall more contested and contentious approach to international affairs that Xi Jinping is advocating. We've been talking with Dr. Bates Gill, who is executive director of the Center for China Analysis at the Asia Society Policy Institute. I hope you'll read his book. Again, it's called Daring to Struggle, China's Global Ambitions Under Xi Jinping. Bates, thanks so much for all your insights and analysis today. Great being a part of it, Bonnie. Thank you so much. 